From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the American South, there are state borders, variations in topography and accents, and there's the Nat Line. That is the fall line where the Piedmont meets the coastal plain. It's actually the sandy soil south of that line where these pesky little critters live out their short lives. Larry Walker has also thrived there. His book, Tales from Georgia's Nat Line, is a series of essays about life in the Deep South, a part of the U.S. that, in his words, was and is somewhat different from the rest. The book also lays out his experiences and reflections on serving for three decades in the Georgia General Assembly and House of Representatives. I spoke with him about the book earlier this year. Larry joined me by phone from Perry, Georgia, a town he described in a speech as Mayberry with an Attitude. I asked him what he meant by that. Well, it's a winter attitude. It's always been a winter town. Had outstanding basketball, boys basketball. Good people, good people running things. The same people that ran the churches, uh, ran the schools, and ran the city government. So it's been a good place to live. Uh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere but Perry. Well, it was a place rich with characters. You write about Jerry Dutrix Horton and George Big Hoss Johnson and hanging out in front of you. One of your grandparents had a small store, rural store. The others were cotton farmers. And you remember being at your grandfather's store and how infrequently cars pulled up. Your other grandparents didn't even have electricity. You had to pretty much entertain yourself. And there's a chapter in the book called Wishing Boredom on My Grandchildren. Why? What did being bored teach you? I spent a lot of time in Washington County with my Walker grandparents, and they killed hogs, and they made syrup, and they uh, made uh, soap in the wash pot, and they... Uh, went to the sawmill and got slabs. That's the size of trees that were cut off that were not fit for lumber to burn in the stove to cook and to heat. And I'm very, very grateful of, of that. They had tenants living on the place, and I liked the tenants very much. In fact, two of the older boys were kind of my heroes. And so I got to taste that and see how it used to be and Many people in my generation did not get that, and I'm thankful that I did. We didn't have toys, and we didn't have uh, television to watch, and we didn't have these uh, games that you hold in your hand to play, and we had to do things, and we were pretty much uh, left our own devices to, to play and to do the things we wanted to do. And a lot of times we're spending dirt roads, uh, making toady frog stews with your hand, and some of the older people will understand that, and, and we in, in creeks and and trying to catch fish in creeks. We did mudding. Mudding is what we called it. You'd muddy up the water, and the fish would come to the top, and and it was just a carefree time. And I think that again, it has has had a big effect on what I am today, good or bad. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed that, and am glad I was exposed to that. But it's also a book about history, and I wonder if you could read a little bit from the preamble about what was King Cotton. I, I certainly will. Uh, th this book is, is about the South, and often when you're writing about the South, you really, it's really about cotton, even when the word cotton is not mentioned. Talk about tenant farmers and mules, and really most of that writing involves cotton. Talk about the Civil War, and cotton is certainly involved as a primary cause of the war. Truly, cotton was king in my South. When you have the power and the money, and the two must always go together, you don't easily give it up. 
And so it was in the South. If you had the cotton and you could get it gathered and sold, you'd have the money and the power, and those who had it didn't easily give it up. The South has paid for this and continues to pay, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And maybe during my children's lifetimes, the debt will be paid. Well, that debt looms very large over the South's economy and history and, and, and sense of legacy, I think. In 2001, you argued to change Georgia's flag on the floor of the House. The flag had been dominated by a Confederate emblem. It was Governor Roy Barnes who asked you to speak. Why did he choose you? Well, I think I was the rural legislator, non-metro legislator. I wasn't actually rural. I was from Houston County, but I was non-metro, and they needed somebody to bring some of the rural and non-metro legislators along. And uh, as a consequence of that, I went to the well of the House and made a speech about changing the flag. If you look at it today, you might say, well, it's pretty conservative. It was, but bear in mind that my job was to try to get some of the rural, non-metro legislators to vote to change the flag. And within the last few months, Governor Barnes told me that I changed, uh, he actually said, over 20 votes. Hmm. Uh, I doubt that I changed that many. That was mighty flattering to me, and I appreciated it, but I know I did change some. We needed 91 to pass it in the House, and we had 93 or 94, and it was a real, real uh, electrifying day. I've never seen anything like it, never saw anything like it in the 32 years that I served, uh, and, it, and it, was a, it was a good thing. And incidentally, even now, uh, the Mississippi flag is in controversy uh, in, I think, New Jersey, They've taken it out of a park where they have all of the state flags and have done it in other places, and I just think it was the thing to do. The time had come. I love the South. I love so many things about the South. I told them, I started my speech by saying, in a sea of southern draws, mine is probably the most pronounced. Hmm. And it was. And uh, But I, I think that was a, a very big economic thing and, and a, a very good big the right thing to do moment when we change the flag. Well, your full speech is in the book, but that is a topic that often comes up in discussions about the South. And in your book, you say it's never been easy to be a Southerner, black or white, but it's worth holding on to and we must. And you were one of few men from Perry who traveled to Selma, Alabama in 1963. Then you went back again 50 years later in 2013. How did your perception of the civil rights movement change when you walked across that Edmund Pettus Bridge? Well, my feeling was we've come a long way. We've come a long way. Uh, That goes for the white race and the black race. The the white race and being more receptive and being more uh, conscious of of the right thing to do. The black race and, and having more opportunities. And that's what I thought about when I crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, a few years ago, and and uh, it, interesting, I left uh, Perry uh, with three other guys to go to Fort Worth, Texas, and work in a steel mill. We ate lunch in Selma, Alabama, June 11, 2000. I mean, June 11, 1963. Uh, that was the day that George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door in Tuscaloosa. 
we went on and spent the night in Meridian, Mississippi. That was the night that Byron D. LeBeck was shot and killed Medgar Evers, and we went through Jackson, Mississippi the next morning. There was not an interstate system. We went right through the downtown, and there was there was demonstrations in the streets. We went on, and we lived right off the TCU campus where we worked at Texas Steel, and another person lived right off the TCU campus. Whether we ever saw him or not, I do not know, named Lee Harvey Oswald. Hmm. Well, that's the kind of situation we had in the South in 1963. Certainly, it's infinitely better today. You wrote about whether or not the debt that the South owes will ever be paid. What do you think you and your lifetime, and even in the tales you tell in this book, do you think that contributes to payment of this debt? I do think it contributes to the payment. And uh, the South was always, it was, it, was an ag- it was an agrarian economy based on agriculture. The North, uh, which was the developing part of the country in the 1800s, and the North was an industrial society, and as a consequence, they, in many ways, were ahead of the South. Uh, and, and when you say an agricultural economy, it was an agricultural economy dominated by the people that owned the land, the plantation owners. Uh, and we've always been a little bit behind, but I'm extremely proud of what's happened in the South. And you look at Atlanta, Georgia. It's a very, it's a very, very sophisticated metropolitan city, and and so much of Georgia is that way today. So I think we're getting there. I, I, I really do. The Nat line is actually an imaginary line, but you do borrow a term from your fellow state rep, Marcus Collins, who said, we never get any money south of the Nat line. What do you think most needs attention? Well, Marcus was a big burly farmer from Camilla, from actually from Mitchell County, I don't think, Cotton, Georgia is what he called home, a, a big farmer, and he was also chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is one of the most important committees in the House. He and Joe Frank Harris and I were good friends, and Joe Frank at that time was chairman of the uh, of the uh, Appropriations Committee, and Marcus was uh, constantly telling Joe Frank, we don't ever get any money south of the Nat line. And Joe Frank was very calm and never got upset and showed it, uh, but this particular day he, he became irritated with that, and he said, Marcus, exactly where is the Nat line? And Marcus said, it's that line we don't ever get any money south of. <laughs> and, uh, we have, you know, we do have two Georgias. We probably have more than two. We have several Georgias, but certainly South Georgia, much of South Georgia is a, is a, is, is not economically as, uh, viable and, and, uh, is not doing as well as other parts of the state of Georgia. Well, you were elected as a representative in 1973 when Jimmy Carter was governor. He, along with Muhammad Ali and Mickey Mantle, are among the 10 conversations that you remember. What was memorable about that conversation with the man from Plains, Georgia? Well, in, in his last year, being a young, Jimmy Carter was not in with the establishment in the legislature. As a consequence, he used young legislators, I would like to thank young bright legislators, to help him with his program. So I was a friend of the, of the governor's, and uh, during his last year, the latter part of the session, I went into his office and was having a nice conversation with him, and I said, Governor, what, you, what are you going to do when your term is up? And he said, I'm going to run for president. And in all innocence, I said, president of what? 
<laughs> I could not imagine that anybody from Georgia would think they could get elected president of the United States, but he certainly proved me wrong. I'm speaking with Perry resident and longtime state, state representative Larry Walker about his new book. It's called Tales from Georgia's Netline. It's a series of short chapters and essays about life that was and is in rural Georgia. We're going to end this segment with Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind. And you were one of the representatives in Georgia's state house to make it or to advocate for it to be the official state song. So. Exciting things happened in my 32 years in the Georgia House of Representatives. But the most exciting thing that ever happened was when Ray Charles, who just a few years earlier would not even even been allowed to go on the floor of the House, Ray Charles came and Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote the song, was in in uh, Hollywood, California, and there was a hookup with him, and he talked, and that was a big thing too. And Ray Charles played and sang George On My Mind and we adopted it as an official state song. I think it's the biggest bang for the buck economically of anything we did in my 32 years in the General Assembly. Larry Walker, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Former Georgia State Representative, now author Larry Walker. His book, Tales from Georgia's Natline, is a series of essays reflecting on his life in the Deep South. And as we said, we're going to leave you with a little bit of Georgia on my mind, performed by Ray Charles. And we'll be back with more on Second Thought after a short break. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta's own Black Lips is a band that keeps audiences on their toes, both literally, which you'd know if you ever landed in the mosh pit at one of their shows, and figuratively. I mean, who'd have thunk that the latest It Bag line from Gucci is named for band member Zumi Rossow? 20 years in the business, they've made unruly garage rock, rockabilly records, and sometimes sound like old country crooners. In fact, they have a new album coming out in early 2020, which they say is a country album. It's called The Black Lip Sing in a World That's Falling Apart. And you're listening to one of the singles from the record, This Is Odelia. We spoke with founding member Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander earlier this year while they were working on the new album. But first, we had to understand where they came from, including being kicked out of Dunwoody High School. We actually were, we started the band while, while we were in there. We were kicked out shortly after. Uh, together? Yeah. Separately? What happened? We got uh, kicked out separately. Yeah, Cole was first and I was a few days later, I think. So you guys were bad kids, like your song. Let's hear a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, not not like we were good, bad, not evil. (laughs) What's the distinction there? Well, never anything with malicious intent, just like smoking cigarettes and cutting class and stuff like that. So minor league bad. Yeah. 
Yeah. Misdemeanors. All right. Well, I want to know more about you growing up. You both worked at the Majestic, the diner on Ponce de Leon. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What, what were those early days of the band like? I mean, we all lived in a big house with 10 or 11 people in a home park. It was kind of like a, a frat house for people that didn't go to college. Uh, it was called <laughs> Dice Slaughter House. You know, we'd usually go on tour for about a month. And then we'd have to come back home and work for a month to save up to go on tour because, well, you pretty much had to pay to go on tour because we didn't make any money. Yeah, Majestic was very supportive, though, because we'd still have a job if we left for a long time on tour and came back. We'd still have our job, so that was important for us to have that, that stability since we weren't making money touring. Did you, did you ever have any idea at that point that, you know, 20 years later you would still be in a band together? What, what were your aspirations then? We didn't really think too far ahead, you know. It was yeah. uh, never really thought more than like a, like a Your week next in meal. the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was about it. But I always knew that this is what I was going to do. Uh, I liked, you know, the majestic and all that, but you know, I kind of wanted to be on the road and be making records. And Jared, you come from a long line of preachers, right? I mean, your father was a bishop. Yeah, uh, my grandfather, uh, all my great uncles, uncles, all that. So I mean, I guess I'm still kind of in the preaching business in a sense. Well, I wondered about that. Do you, do you feel like that? Do you feel like you are, you know, spreading the gospel of a certain kind? Spreading, you know, just good vibes and trying to get people to have a good time. Um, I mean, it's essentially the same line of work. Uh, you know, they all played music on stage. Um, so I was all very used to it. I guess it's in, it's in my blood. Um, all my favorite musicians cut their teeth in the pulpit and in church. Well, there's one particular musician, I understand, the Mighty Hannibal, another Atlanta native, funk musician, soul musician. He was a kind of a mentor to you, wasn't he, Jared? Yeah, yeah. He was my, yeah, he was my mentor. He always called me his protege. Um, we became real good friends after we did a show in New York City in like 2004 or something. And then I, he hadn't been back to Atlanta since the 70s, so I arranged for him to come back and we were his backup band and... Pretty much, I've talked to him at least once a day, every day, until you know, until he passed a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I have to say, the, his hymn number five, I think, is one of the greatest protest songs ever written. I want somebody to tell my mother and go down yonder in Georgia and tell my father that I'm way over here, crawling in these trench holes, covered with blood. But one thing that I know that. Fantastic. Man. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think that one is the one that kind of got him blacklisted from radio, though. Yeah, people uh, wouldn't play it. Well, I'm thinking that you, you make a nod as a band to so many different kinds of music, to rock and roll, to blues, soul, psychedelica, punk. Um, maybe I would even argue country. I think there's a lot of great country sort of theme in your music. I've even yeah, heard a do, is that something that you grew up thinking of and, and, and listening to when you were a kid? I pretty much like all kinds of music. I mean, it tends to be more outsider music and more like raw stuff. And country has a lot of that. We're actually kind of working on, or we just finished a country record now. Um, well, our interpretation of country, it's not purist by any means. But, you know, we always, you know, we, we like a lot of different rec kinds of records and kinds of music. And 
country is something I kind of came up on as well as, you know, gospel and rock and roll. Yeah, a lot of traditional, like, Southern American art forms were influential. Do, yeah. what, are, what are some records that people who would like to understand you a little bit better in that outsider country genre might listen to? They're not all outsiders, but like Charlie Feathers. Mm. Um, there was a comp we listened to a lot called God Bless America that kind of compiled a lot of, like, weirdo country music and, yeah, some, some certain songs from artists that were kind of darker or weirder is i like highly eddie, recommend it. like eddie like one of the best songs be like uh eddie nowak. eddie nowak you think i'm psycho don't you mama you think i'm psycho don't you mama you better let him lock me up that one's uh man that one's super weird and just really good oh he did that song dolores yeah, 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 yeah. That I'm guy. You know okay, that one. I know. Yeah. I know a little. I, I have some. I have some arcane country music taste myself. Well, your music. I mean, your rebellion and defiance, which has gotten you into trouble a couple of times, or maybe ten times. You were <laughs> almost arrested in India once. I understand. What what happened there? Uh, well, tour is going great and all, but we were kind of like didn't know like how to act, so we were being very reserved, and then the tour manager we had was like oh just do whatever you want and we played this really wild show at a university there in chennai india and uh i thought it went great but went off without a hitch but like cole and ian kissed each other and i guess didn't go over well the sponsors (laughs) of the tour they called the police and uh we just had to get all of our stuff from the hotel and we took a taxi like 10 hours to the next state i think was tamil and uh, then we found out the tour was over. I didn't even know we had a sponsor on the tour, but I guess they pulled out. They must have been more conservative. Like all the kids liked it; they thought it was fine. But I guess who is? I guess kissing, like man kissing, is a big no-no there. Yeah. yeah, the bottom fell out of the tour pretty much after that. So, Cole, I also understand that you were once headbutted by somebody in the audience at a show in Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. We've had like little bits of like rowdy bouncers and fans, a little bit of violence um but just kind of part of the territories it's always kind of to me part of just like the entertainment of it no one's no one's ever gotten like seriously injured or anything i don't think but 20 years in do you ever get tired of that you know the rowdiness or or the risk of like oh i'm going out on a show this could you know i I could get my head split we kind of like the idea of any moment all hell could break loose that that's kind of a good feeling to incorporate fear and other emotions into the music instead of just happiness can be happy and scary at the same time. So that's the edge that you're looking for? Well, it just kind of came naturally, I guess, but yeah. Yeah, so th- this is something I've heard. You, you've described yourself as having ODD, oppositional <laughs> de- oppositional yeah, we- defiant disorder, which is a real thing. Yeah, we thought it was a joke. Yeah, we thought first. it was fake, but uh, but it seemed like it described us. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you- I thought it was a real thing. Yeah. I think you got a band-wide diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But- uh, I'm seeking treatment right now. <laughs> <laughs> I somehow don't believe you. <laughs> well, as long as you don't tell me to seek treatment. <laughs> yeah, if you tell us not to seek treatment, then we will. You, because you do the absolute opposite of what you're being yeah, told to do. Yeah, much, yeah. yeah. Well, and so you've definitely chosen the right life for yourself. Because not, you know, if you had oppositional defiance disorder in a lot of jobs, you wouldn't last. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would be toast in a lot of professions. But this one caters to all my disabilities. 
<laughs> okay, well, let's talk about your music. Your 2011 album is called Arabia Mountain, referring to uh, the National Heritage Area that's just outside of Atlanta. This was produced by Mark Ronson. Let's hear just a little bit of one of those songs called Modern Art. The cover photo on this record was taken at Arabia Mountain. Have I got that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so why why this place so central to this record? People were always asking us when we were touring on that at that album what the name meant. It was a pretty simple answer, we were like because that's the place where we took the picture. There's no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we that's did. Deep. We did a we did a <laughs> Middle Eastern tour, which is just kind of coincidental around that time. But that was right so around the time of, of the Arab Spring, wasn't it? I mean, that that's yeah. what I was thinking. Twenty eleven. Yeah, it was kind of in the air a little bit, I think. We spent a couple of years trying to get our tour booked in the Middle East. We had to actually postpone it for a year because uh, we were going out of Damascus. We had gone to the Syrian embassy in Washington, D.C. to get you know the clearance for all the stuff. And the person booking the tour was in Damascus. And then, um, well, you know, I don't think it needs any explaining. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, a pretty crazy knack for timing, I guess, in that yeah. case. We were all approved to go in and everything, but yeah, then... But we switched our home base to Beirut after that. My guests are Atlanta natives Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander, in other words, the founders of Black Lips. You told us earlier that the album you're working on is a country album, so is this the first time you're making a full record in a particular style? Yeah, this new one's yeah. the first time we've ever had any sort of kind of a concept before. Usually there's no rhyme or reason to it. But this one, we kind of want it to be more rootsy and stuff like that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that the record that you did, uh, it was produced by Sean Lennon, Satan's Graffiti or God's Art. Uh, I think it was Pitchfork. They said it was a concept album while making a complete mockery of the medium. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, that's pretty spot on. Because I think Sean was like, Said something about us making a concept record, but our concept was uh, nothing. <laughs> it seemed like we were making a concept, but we weren't, I guess. <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit from there. This is uh, the song Occidental Front, and Yoko Ono, of all people, sings a little bit on this song. Yeah. So working with Sean Lennon, I mean, you've also worked with Mark Ronson. You've worked with Patrick Carney from the Black Keys. What is it like working with these, you know, musicians, um, producers rather, that bring so much to the table and not just in terms of their history, but, you know, a level of fame? Mark Ronson was our first uh, experience working with a producer. And honestly, I didn't really know what a producer did before that. And Mark really changed the way I looked at it because he brought so much to the table and I really was like, oh, now I get why people have producers. Yeah, he opened our ears and minds to working with them in the future after that. What, yeah, is that, yeah. what does that mean? Like, what kind of things did you do that you hadn't done on records before? Well, I'll do more than one or two takes on a, on a track. <laughs> yeah. uh, having outside perspective. Is yeah, just yeah. Good. It's like having a, like a coach, you know, like if you're a sports team. Yeah, and he brought in the instrumentation, like he brought in like a saw player and, and 
horn players and stuff like that. So that kind of opened our minds to new ideas. We kind of met Sean through Mark, so it kind of all fell into place. So what was it like having Yoko in the studio with you, or did she do her track separately? Oh, no, she was in the studio every day. She was probably yeah. in there for like nine or ten days, because we were living at their house the whole time. We were there for like a month. Okay, this is a whole new dimension. So, I mean, it was at first it was really surreal, because, you know, she's so iconic, and we're sitting in her kitchen with her. <laughs> But uh, she was she's really really cool. After a while, like the it, it wore off because the first day I'm like you know dang Yoko Ono's sitting right there, just, <laughs> <laughs> we're just eating sandwiches. Uh, but then yeah that that wore off. She's really cool and far out. Such uh, a great, such an amazing voice to have on that record too. Yeah yeah, yeah. she's yeah she still can belt it out for an eighty something year old. Yeah, she's like a master scream screamer. Mm. Okay, so I heard a little bit of a rumor about somebody else that you might be working with. Um, anything you want to tell us about that? Um, we recently did a jam with uh, Kesha. We did. We it was a song. Spent yeah. a little time in the studio with her. Um, I don't know what'll you know what'll come with it and stuff, but it's not done it, yet. We did so. like a tour with her last year. Mm -hmm. We just kind of we met her at Coachella years ago, and it seems like an odd pairing but we kind of just hit it off with her years ago and we've stayed buddies ever since and we always talked about doing stuff together yeah she's from nashville and her mom was like a songwriter she wrote songs like johnny cash and stuff so she actually has a lot of roots in kind of southern music which was kind of fitting for what we're doing right now with the country themed record oh, that's so interesting i actually i'm just trying to imagine what the the union of the two of you would sound like kesha and and black lips yeah it's like country stuff it sounds, it sounds yeah, real good. More rooty than pop, I'd say, but yeah. Really, really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hometown us. Holler. That was Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander, Atlanta natives and founders of the band The Black Lips. They have a new album coming out in early 2020. A country record, or their version of country, as they said. It's called Black Lip Sing in a World That's Falling Apart. You're listening to one of the tracks from the album, Gentleman. And she wants a gentleman. Nothing more, just a If you missed any of today's show or would like to listen on your own time, hit the Programs tab for On Second Thought at gpbnews.org. That's where you can subscribe to the On Second Thought podcast so that you will never miss a beat. Author Jocelyn Jackson is coming up. Her book, Never Have I Ever, is not the game, but a literary thriller. So stay tuned. On Second Thought, we'll be right back. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From the outside, Amy Way looks middle-class normal. She's a new mom, a little older than the others in her Florida suburb. She's got a 15-year-old stepdaughter, an adoring college professor husband, and she and her white, educated neighbor ladies watch each other's kids, they power walk, they shop at TJ Maxx, and they get together at book clubs. 
But it is mining what's below the surface of ordinary lives that has made Jocelyn Jackson a multiple New York Times bestselling novelist. Her newest book, Never Have I Ever, is now available in paperback. The novel ratchets things up to thriller level when a new neighbor knocks at Amy's door. A sultry and charming stranger named Rue hijacks the agenda at book club and soon moves on to Amy's life with a blackmail scheme to expose a long-buried secret. I spoke with Jocelyn Jackson earlier this year when the book first came out and asked her to walk us through that scene when this mysterious woman, Rue, arrives at Amy Way's doorstep. Well, they, um, you know, they're adjuncts and administrators and librarians. They're living in a seaside college town. And Rue is different from the moment she steps in. Amy says she seems like somebody who would know how to make pate from scratch or <laughs> has a passport full of stamps or the kind of person who's probably had sex in a moving vehicle, maybe on the way to book club. <laughs> so she stands out immediately and she's very charismatic. So she derails the discussion of House of Mirth and gets everyone playing a drinking game that's designed to get you drunk enough to say more than you should. Uh-huh. So there's a passage early on about how the women initially respond to Rue. Could you read that for us? Oh, sure. I'd love to. We have a new neighbor, Charlotte said. This is her first time at book club. Let's all welcome, um, Rue. A murmur of hellos went around the circle, and Tate whispered something to Panda. Panda nodded like always, but maybe less emphatically than usual. Panda Greer was top-heavy and matronly, with both a plain, sweet face and a delicious husband. She had made Tate her best friend the minute the Benascos moved in, petting her, bringing over fruit and coffee almost every morning. It was as if Panda thought Tate was a smoking-hot volcano god that must be propitiated, propitiated, lest she erupt with sex all over Panda's marriage. Now Rue was in the room, an obvious expansion of a dangerous pantheon, and Tate was bristling at the competition— Panda couldn't serve both gods, and I was small-town enough to wonder how it would play out. I thought she'd likely stick by next-door Tate. The Sprite House was four blocks further away from the beautiful Mr. Greer. And the Sprite House, in this case, is Amy's best friend Char's Airbnb. You, you know, I know two things. You read, you do the audiobooks for your own books, right? I do, yeah. And I can just hear it now. But also that you're an actress. You know, you, you make acute observations of these little petty dynamics and little power plays and alliances. Is that part of your knack for watching human behavior? Being oh, an actress? sure. I mean, people are, I, I think about my, I have this dog who, if you're petting another dog, she just loses her mind. And we're really not that different. Like, you see those little microcosms play out. We are we are mammals. We are pack animals. We have all these same kinds of instincts. And that's fun. Well, from the jump, we see, as you said, you know, she kind of hijacks the book club, derails the conversation, pours many drinks, and starts this game, Never Have I Ever. It's very like middle school, except everyone's older and a lot drunker, probably. And this eventually raises Amy's hackles. Is, what's happening to her? What's well, happening to Amy? Very quickly for Amy, it, it, it becomes very clear that Rue has aimed the game at her. This is not, Rue is not coming here randomly to hijack a book club. She's after Amy. Amy is not exactly who she appears to be. She has reinvented herself after a very dark past. And Rue knows this coming in. Yeah, so she's, she's a mark. She's a mark. 
Yeah, she's absolutely a mark. And I think one of the things that I like about this scene is there is all this sort of fun, petty snottiness, but there's also some really genuine, loving relationships that, and this is a community, and we all have our little uh, sore places in our neighborhoods and our community, that neighbor who won't cut their bushes back or whatever. But that's all layered over these relationships that really matter. Yeah, and she's made this life for herself yes. after this dark past. And it's, you know, later that Rue exposes that she has been targeting her. And we begin to learn more about Amy. She was an unpopular, overweight kid. Um, and after this defining event, a very self-destructive young adult, you know, drinking, indiscriminate sex. What changed for her? Uh, well, Amy uh, says scuba diving mm. changed it. Um, she found a place under the water where she could be at peace and sort of let her past go. There's a lot of baptism imagery that goes along with this. I mean, I, I knew she would be a scuba diver before I started the book because I wanted all those metaphors to be in place. I've, I've long called myself a redemption-obsessed novelist. <laughs> and and while this is a thriller and it's fun and there's twists and there's turns, I, I certainly am looking at the mechanics of grace. Yeah. And can you reinvent yourself? And their descriptions of it are just beautiful, being underwater. Oh, thank uh, you, you know, it, to float in the same place as the truth, silent and unafraid. She says, this is, this is how she does it. And you started scuba diving to research the book. What did it do for you? Oh, it changed the book. Like, I didn't have scuba diving be the thing that saved Amy. And, and it sort of made the book kind of cluttered in a weird way. And then I started diving. It's like yoga plus plus. It puts you in your body. You're in your breath. There's no past. There's no future. It's this moment that you are completely present. And I thought, oh, this is it. And so it really cleaned the book out and focused it. So there was just this one central metaphor that I could expand on. And I think it made the book cleaner and tighter and faster in mm -hmm. terms of like making the theme really extant so that I could get to the kissing and the shooting. <laughs> well, there is so much. It's such a brisk pace. And that's one of the things I think your books are really known for, that you don't, you know, build up to this big denouement at the end, if I said that even properly. Sure. But that you have these little twists and turns in the plot. How do you pace those out? Well, I don't really like a book where you read for 90,000 words to get this one big whammo twist. Like, and I don't think that's how life goes either. I like there to be reversals and for revelations to come in spaced ways. So you think you know what's happening. You have a pretty good handle on it. And then bang, no, now we're going this way. Now we're going that. That's what I look for in a thriller. And that's what I tried to do in this Well, book. this is your first thriller. Yes. So what, 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 what brought that about? Um, I didn't set out to, I didn't like today. I should wake up and write a thriller. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that. I just started writing the book I wanted to write. And a couple of chapters in, I was like, oh, this is paced differently. I'm going to have to rework how the arc of this works. Mm. And so it like, it really, Virginia, it's my book. Like if you like my voice, my weird sense of humor, my female characters who act instead of reacting, it's definitely a Jocelyn Jackson book, but I've upped the stakes. Yeah. It's ratcheted up. Well, th this is one of the things, too, I noticed that once the possibility of Amy's shame, let's say, getting out there, there's this kind of regression 
And and she says, Rue conjured this long transformed Amy Smith, basically. Yeah. She was when she was growing up, she begins overeating. She can't stop herself, even when making herself feel sick. And that experience secret secretly using food embedded in her history, the history of so many women that I know certainly. Hi. Okay, so I wondered, <laughs> is this part of your history too? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, the, you none of my characters are me. But they're all mine. And so I explore the kinds of questions that drive me. And I think so many American women have an absolutely poisonous relationship with food. I'm, you know, I'm 51 now. I'm moderately at peace with food, but it is an uneasy peace. And I, as a younger woman, it was all, you know, straight up war. Yeah. Uh, she was a former laxative user, binge eater. Yeah. I mean, She's so many women. She's so she does the whole spectrum of eating disorder. She's a compulsive overeater, a bulimic, and an anorexic, like depending on how it's manifesting. The whammy. My guest is Jocelyn Jackson, best-selling author of Gods in Alabama, Between Georgia, and six other novels, in addition to their newest, Never Have I Ever, which is a thriller. Well, this is the other thing that comes across here, like how frail ordinary life is, you know, how easy it was to get off track for Amy. Yes. And how the old survival tactics, you know, letting the lies roll off of her tongue. We all have these secrets. Have we all got this in us? I think so. I I, I will say that, that it is a personality thing. Like uh, one of the things that's the most interesting to me about this book is that if Rue and Amy took Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, they would get very similar results. The sorting hat would pop them both right into Slytherin. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I'm, I would be put in Slytherin. I think there's some good people who are Slytherins, but you know, they, they're two sides of the same coin. And what really, so when, what looks like a cat and mouse game, Rue comes in to play cat and mouse and very quickly she's playing cat and cat. Mm. So they're well matched, which I think makes it a more fun iteration of cat and mouse. Yeah. This is the thing. One of the things that comes across in the brinksmanship, I think (laughs) between the two of them, um, they see themselves in each other. Yes. And and Amy says, you know, she's schooled in dishonesty. And it made me think, you know, takes a con to know a con, right? Yeah. The only, but in a way, Rue's the only person who truly knows her. Yes. It, Rue knows her whole history and Rue understands her personality. So at the same time that, you know, Amy hates her, Rue's coming to destroy her life. But there's an undeniable attraction there because she recognizes herself. One reviewer called it um, a cross between... Desperate Housewives and Killing Eve, which I think is, yes, if those two had a baby, it would be I'll my take book. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it also made me think, you know, as I was thinking about that, that relationship between the cons, that being a novelist is a bit of a con, right? You are, you are, you are, you are gaining people's faith in these characters and who you are presenting. And then there's all these switches and misdirections. Yes. I'm, I'm not thinking that the, that's your next career necessarily. <laughs> As a con. Well, you know, I do come out of theater, so yeah. I, I understand the mechanics of that pretty well. And, and I do want to say too, that, you know, I, I really like Amy. I don't think she's an unreliable narrator. She doesn't tell any lies to the reader that she's not telling to herself like she really is trying to be a good person and i i think that's what i look for in a character that i'm going to be interested in because it's it is not easy just to be a good person mm. just to be especially if you have a past like amy's trying to live down but just even just the mechanics of goodness we're all so busy and we're all so egocentric and we're all so this and that and i i do 
you know, she has some questionable skill sets, but I I like her. Yeah, and they were hard, you know, honestly come upon. You know, they were they were yes. formed because of this trauma in her life. And and even if Rue does know her better than anyone else, she she knows her on her worst day ever. You know what happens yes. on her worst day. And this made me think a lot about, you know, justice and forgiveness of others and of the self. Is that anything that you are working through in the book? Yes. I, mean, I know you know this. I, I work with a group called Reforming Arts. Yeah. We are a small nonprofit that works to bring higher education to Georgia's prison system. And I think a lot of, I mean, I was already interested in reinvention and redemption, which is probably why I work with Reforming Arts. But certainly my work there has tempered that. Like I, I see people who are going to get out of prison and they want a connected, sustainable, good life. They just want some opportunities and they're going to be defined by one thing they did mm-hmm. maybe 30 years ago. I mean, this is Max we're talking about. Yeah. The one that they do this thing and it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But you can't walk around your whole life holding the worst thing you've ever done in the palm of your hand, staring at it. You can't define yourself that way. And and so I'm I guess I was interested in in can you reinvent to that degree? Can't how can you will other people let you? Can you remake a life into something connected and sustainable and sweet when you have this thing in your hand? Will anybody let you put that down ever? And you're teaching writing to them, correct? At uh, least yeah. Creative writing, composition, literature, because I think that is like if you can tell your narrative, you can control your narrative and you can change your narrative. Mm -hmm. Like if you can express it and think about it on those terms, you can change it. Giving them a tool to work it out in some level. Yeah. Or you're just creating space where that can happen, where there's a room with some agency in it. And um, and also just on a more pragmatic level, I think education equals opportunity. Mm. So if you have an education, when you get out, you're already to a place where there's going to be more opportunities for you to build a sustainable life. This is, I think, a rich vein that I've seen in your other books, too. You know, like troubled adolescents, they go through things and then they become adults with their lives put together. And and many of them leave home. They get as far away as possible. You know, like uh, uh, Amy basically goes to the other side of other coast, you know. So, so is that necessary? Leaving home behind to to reinvent the self. I I think it's a huge it's a huge help. Like I think it's very hard to reinvent yourself if you are in the same place with the same people, um, because you know that old thing: lie down with dogs. Get it's really true. Like how much the people you choose to be the dearest people in your life, how much those relationships shape you. I don't think we're really aware of that. Yeah. And and in the book, you know, Amy enters into a relationship with Rue. So it's that idea of how can I fight this person who's doing all these wrong things without losing the self I'm trying to become, without entering, like, I have to, if I go down to her level to fight her, do I lose this person I've invented that's the, who I really want to be? How much, how far do I have to go to protect that person? You know, it, it's a catch-22. It is such a slippery slope here. Uh, just um, before we close, The House of the Mirth is the novel that they're discussing yes. at Book Club, right? <laughs> this 19th century novel, a Edith Wharton novel, yes. also about blackmail and a woman threatened to have her past exposed. And obviously, there have been blackmail stories about men, too. But do you think the reputational risks 
are different yes. for women. I, yeah, of course, I, I'm glad you caught that. The House of Mirth was a very intentional choice. Anybody who's familiar with that book is going to that's that was a little bit of uh, literature humor. I there. was an English major. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, uh, it is. You know, it's a book about social social mores, and this book is definitely about that. And it's about reputation, and it's about what it means to be a woman wrestling with these things. I mean, it is, uh, you, I've seen that story so many times, you know, you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back, but it's almost always told by and about men. And I wanted to look at it. How would it be different if it were women and not just women, mothers, because I think the most dangerous animal on the planet is a mother, anything. (laughs) Well, looking forward to the next thriller, maybe, or, or whatever you come up with. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Atlanta author Jocelyn Jackson. Her newest thriller is now available in paperback, and it's called Never Have I Ever. We're going to leave you with Dr. John's Mama Roo, bringing out the dark side as we close out today's show. She was the queen of little, little, white and blue. Said, ooh, why catch this fire, boy? yourself to die, boy. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>